it's not just a forward-looking strategy. You can retroactively go back and get money for this. Yeah, so just like we, you can amend your taxes back three years, as long as you're like some sort of entity, not for a sole prop, but you can go back and revise your taxes. So if you weren't claiming those credits, we can do a three-year look back and look at what are the wages you're paying for? What are the uh, supplies you're paying for? Deal with this type of experimental, problem-solving, solutions-oriented stuff. If you're building custom stuff, whether it's a manufacturer, I mean, that's how they classify dentists as custom manufacturers almost, because they custom manufacture each little tooth, right? Wow. Welcome everyone to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We're joined this week by Derek Van Ness. He's a tax, financial, and wealth strategist at Big Life Financial, which is a company he founded about 12 years ago. Uh, Derek has got a, a pretty wide berth as far as expertise, and we're going to jump into a lot of different topics here. But the value we want to try and deliver for you today is how can, uh, particularly as small businesses, there's a, a lot of different areas where Derek has found places to, to drive value, if you will. Uh, you know, first of all, Derek, thank you for, for joining us today. We're, we're, we're in a place, right, where it, it seems like it's always been people have, uh, in the small business world, have spent so much time working on, you know, the details with within the business, right? You kind of get lost in the business, sure. but you, you don't have the time to kind of step back and work on the business. And I think sure. where, when you can work on the business is where you can find these nuggets of value all over the place that you specialize in. Um, you know, today more than ever with coronavirus and, and everybody kind of having to pivot and adjust, we're in a place where every financial decision, it seems like is critical. So uh, with that, you know, we, we appreciate you joining us today and, and we look forward to diving into a bunch of different topics. I typically like to give the audience a little bit of history. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about how you ended up in, in this market segment? How did you end up as a, a specialist in tax and finance and, and wealth strategies? Yeah, absolutely, James. And I really appreciate you having me on the show here. Uh, you know, my, my background's quite varied not always by choice, but because, you know, life happens. And uh, I always knew I wanted to own my own business and had a construction background growing up as a kid where my dad had a construction company. So I was familiar with that whole home building process and, and I like building new things. And so when I came out of school, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I knew I needed to learn how to sell. So I got into equipment financing, which Turned out to be a really great skill set because basically I had to call a ton of people and generate business from nothing and figure out like how do I, how do I make a place for myself in the world? Um, and, and what was cool about that is I got to see tax returns, I got to be around financials, I got to understand credit and lending and you know a lot of things that translated really well into my next step, which was becoming a house flipper. Uh, but that was before house flipping was like flipping, right? It was just called buy a house, fix it up and sell it back then. <laughs> it didn't have these cool names. There was no TV shows and, you know, good looking twins on TV telling you how easy this is. Right. And, and you probably know this and everybody listening knows this. Like they don't even show the hard part of the job. <laughs> hard part of the job is finding the deal, right? Like the marketing, the figuring it out, the negotiating the deal. All the TV shows is the construction side of them running around dealing with pipes that broke or something silly. Uh, that part is was to me was much simpler, 
but long story short, understanding finance and understanding how to negotiate deals, um, understanding what really drives, like you said, value in real estate was super important to me. And so we, we built a business around that 2001 to 2009, flipping houses and, and did about 150 of those down in Southern California, Las Vegas, a little bit in Utah, because that's where I'm from, but primarily the Los Angeles area. And then of course, 2008 hit and I had all these skills, but you know, cash flow property wasn't really a thing in Southern California, especially in the, in the single family, one to four units. It just didn't work, right? Unless you were putting 30, 40% down and then your ROI was so small that it's like, why, why do that? So when that happened, what I did for a living was kind of wiped out, right? There was nobody to, you could buy a property cheap. You just couldn't resell it and you couldn't buy it cheap enough to still rent it. So it was a, it was kind of a weird time. And that's when I transitioned to the financial services side. I had all these skills and basically a good friend of mine who has an Inc. 500 company and he's a New York Times bestselling author and all this stuff. He said, hey, I need someone to work with the business owners we're servicing here. You've been a business owner. You've done investing. You've been in, you know, licensed in insurance and, and some of these financial products. Like You're the combination we're looking for. So he brought me on and that gave me a chance to to make the switch to where I am now, which was helping business owners to be smarter with their money. And I learned a ton from those guys, right? They brought me in and here's the key tax things we need to look for. Here's the cash flow stuff. Here's the investment stuff. Here's the insurance stuff. Here's the estate planning, entity structure, you know, all the stuff you have to have as a business owner as you grow. So that really kind of forced me to the pivot because I didn't know where I was going at that point. Uh, I came back to real estate, did a little bit from 2015 to 2017, and I'm going to be straight with you. I got a little bit scared because I thought, you know what? I was doing it in California again. I thought the market's kind of at the top here. All the numbers say we're there. Affordability index is saying we're there. And so we just cashed out on everything, and I continued in the financial services world and was kind of waiting for the market to crash. And I made this classic mistake that I think everybody's making right now of thinking it's going to be like 2008, right? We're going to go way too far. Lending's going to loosen up too much, uh, or we're going to go way past what values are, and there's going to be a major pullback, and then we're going to jump back into the market. Well, here we are three or four years later, (laughs) and that hasn't happened, and, and I have a pretty clear idea as to the steps that have created where we are right now. But like you said, we are in a... I mean, first off, it's a black swan event, right? Like nothing that we could, you could really plan for or expect. There's no economic models. Nobody who's around today lived through the Spanish flu and understands really what was going on. And certainly the way the world worked and the markets worked back then was completely different than it is now. So everybody's kind of in this by themselves, trying to figure it out, which I think actually levels the playing field for the little guy. Because the big guys usually they're like, oh, we've seen this, you know, Ray Dalio. Oh, I've seen this four times, or you, you know, your your top people. Nobody's seen this, so the little guy has just as good a chance to figure it out as the big guy. Because I think sometimes they're so stuck in the traditional economic cycles that they're only viewing it from those lenses. They're so well trained that they can only see this. I see this with real estate investors too, right? They're only looking for like square hole, square hole, square hole. So they make everything a square pig and that's not not really the case. So anyway, I think that's kind of where we're at with that is oh, it's wild west right now. Nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. Interest rates are at zero. We're pumping out money like crazy. 
Markets as high as they've ever been. What does all this mean? Tax changes coming. Obviously, government's spending money like, like they print it. Oh wait, they do. So, <laughs> what, so what? What? What do we make from all this, right? So I don't want to like hijack what we're talking about, but that's kind of how I got here, and I'm kind of an economics nerd. So for me, this is like super fascinating and fun. But it's real. It's major. Making bad decisions right now, I think, can really put people in a, a very difficult situation for the near future. Yeah. So uh, thank you for the comprehensive, you know, roll up. It's, I was going to get into this a little bit later, but, but maybe this is what we frame the discussion with. Every indicator and, and, and every economic principle that we, we are aware of and have studied tell us that we are headed for an inflationary period, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if you could explain to the audience, first of all, People hear terms quite often, and they're not always certain what what exactly it means and what that impact is. Uh, first mm -hmm. off, I would agree. I would ask if if you agree, are we headed for a, a, a significant inflationary period? And if so, what does that mean? Right? What do we do? Yeah. So James, there's a ton of conflicting information out there right now, right? Like the Fed's telling us, oh, we're below our inflation target, inflation is very low. But then when you look at the, the money supply, so this is something that a lot of people aren't super familiar with, the idea of M1, right? Like how much money is circulating in the economy? So think of this as how many dollars are out there? Well, last year in February, we had, let's call it 4,000. It's really like $4,000 billion out there circulating. But let's just call that 4,000. And now we're at more like 6,800 in one year. When you do the math, it's about 60% more dollars circulating in our economy than we had last year. So in my mind, if we're thinking supply and demand, if there's that much more supply, are those dollars still in as high a demand or are they worth as much per dollar, right? Do they purchase as much? Now, what's, what's interesting about this is inflation doesn't always happen sort of evenly distributed inflation on the rich versus the poor or different sectors are different. What I believe has happened, and listen, this is just one guy's opinion who reads a lot on the internet, right? Uh, that, that the money mostly right now is still kind of in the top tiers. The business owners, the investors, the people who have big stuff going on, they got all the SBA, SBA loans, the EDIL loans, the, the PPP loans. I mean, I've got business owners who are like, I got a guy who owns a bunch of auto shops down south, and he's like, Derek, they paid, they paid my payroll for six months. We didn't miss a beat in business. Right. So I just got six months worth of payroll for free. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he's like, I don't even know what to do with this. Yep. Well, that's all that money that got printed. And I have these conversations over and over and over again with a lot of my clients who are sitting on a dollars to $500,000 that they're not... They're like, we know we're supposed to keep this for something like a rainy day, but we don't really know what to do with it. So can you help us with that? But I think that's where the money's stuck right now. So the average Joe who's out there swinging a hammer, turning a wrench, he hasn't seen that money. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a business owner, you might find yourself in the same boat, right? I got a bunch of money parked on the sidelines. I feel like I should hang on to this in case this whole thing comes tumbling down, but like, but I, but I don't know. And I think that's where all the money's at. So it's kind of disguising this inflation that we're, we're, we're expecting to happen because the money's stagnant. It's not out being spent 
on tons of equipment and new developments quite as much as it could be yet. But if you know anything about money, you know that the more you have, the easier it gets to spend it, right? Like you kind of get used to having that money and you're like, ah, you know, we could go out and buy this piece of equipment. We could invest in that property. We could do this marketing campaign or project. You find places for that money. Like our brains are pretty good at spending. So I expect that to start trickling out. I also expect that some of that money is going to turn into real wages because you guys are in real estate. The house, housing market's been going crazy everywhere. I'm waiting. You know, you hear, hear that there's cracks in the market, but not really right now. They're kind of where right before the pandemic where we started seeing price reductions and flattening of prices and then, you know, all this money gets pumped in and interest rates drop. I do think that's another thing that's fueling the whole thing is the drop of interest rates happen so quickly. Like in real estate, in a lot of cases, not so much with commercial, but certainly with residential, we've got to have comparables to move that price up, right? It takes time for a loan to fund, so the next house can be worth a little more. And, and I feel like a lot of markets are playing catch up on that. The rate drops so fast yeah. that, the, that, that people could pay more for the same house. And so it's taken six months or 12 months to kind of catch up with where, where things are based on that new lower interest rate. So I think that's driving things too. So there's a lot of moving pieces and it's like, what does all, what does all this mean? So long story short, I think we're going into an inflationary period. We're only seeing it sporadically right now. And here's the crazy part, James. I think if you own real estate, so here's something we do know about inflation. During inflationary times, people who borrow win because debt gets cheaper, right? Dollars are worth less. So if your house payment's 2000 bucks a month and a couple of years from now, dollars are worth less, 2000 bucks a month is cheaper. And assets like real estate adjust for inflation, right? So theoretically, if we think we're going into inflationary times to be able to borrow money and buy assets puts us in a position to ride the inflation wave up and reduce the cost, the real cost of the money that we borrowed. Does that make sense? Well, it it does, but I I would ask a few questions, you know, uh, to that end. So I get it. If you borrow, you win, right? If if your your mortgage is 2000 a month now down the road, because there's so much more money and because we're in a place of inflation, that $2,000, it doesn't matter as much, right? right. So in scale, it becomes a smaller uh, burden, if you will. Mm-hmm. On the real estate side, and we're struggling with this now, right? Is mm-hmm. it a good time to buy? Well, because of what we just said, yes, it is. But what type of asset do you buy, right? So we, we do a lot of mm-hmm. commercial work and we're yeah. uh, one one in particular uh, landlord, very, very, very savvy, and we debate all of the time, uh, increases, lease increases, right? Mm-hmm. Typical mm-hmm. lease increase is going to be anywhere from, uh, you know, if you do a five-year lease, let's say, and you have a Walgreens signature, they're going to want no increases for five years. And at the end of the five years, they're going to give you 10% or 12.5% jump, right? Then you mm-hmm. get down to the mom and pops, we get up to 3 4% annual increases. So the discussion now is if we're going to continue to to acquire real estate and advise our clients to acquire real estate and it's income producing where you've got multiple tenants that are paying, how do you protect yourself against 
inflation i mean how do you how do you schedule your lease increases is 2% the year enough is 3% the year enough theoretically if we get into a real inflationary period our assets even though our cash flow is increasing every year in value it's going down because the inflation would out, outpace the increases right yes and so so what you're talking about there james is is how close can we get to optimization right because the reality of it is this because your debt if you have a fixed mortgage isn't increasing your cash flow still does increase but it may not keep up with inflation like you're saying so could we have done better with our dollars and what i would say is obviously you negotiate the what the market will allow you to do, to to negotiate and then if you feel like you're falling behind something you can consider is um you know, maybe that wasn't the best use of our dollars. Do we have equity? Can we take some of that equity and use it elsewhere to get those higher rates of, of return, right? Create that arbitrage, borrow cheap, reinvest elsewhere. I think that's how you can protect yourself. It's very difficult to come to a mom and pop saying, we project this thing's going to happen or even Walgreens because, you know, Walgreens is a big tenant and they're pretty savvy, right? <laughs> they got some smart people working over there. So I think you negotiate what the market will allow. And over time, what will likely happen is as we see inflation, you'll have more leverage to negotiate those increases, but it's going to be a lagging negotiation, right? You're going to need to prove your case, I think, for them to be able to do it. Unless, and I haven't thought through this because I don't do commercial real estate every day, is there a way you can work with them to create a win-win? You know, something where we'll make a deal with you if inflation goes up, then we'll we'll compensate or we'll we'll raise the rates commensurate with that. But if it doesn't, you get these better prices, right? So, so you're go, go ahead. Yeah. So the, the, there, something we've done in the past, and, and something we're starting to do again now um, addresses that to some extent, right? So you can have yeah. and structure your deals, folks. If you're out there negotiating these commercial leases, and you're not using a professional, which I do not suggest. Uh, because yeah. these are complicated times that we're headed into. Believe me, that's not a self-promotion thing. This is, we're headed into some really complex times. But what you can do, Derek, and what we have done in the past is you negotiate a fair base rate, you negotiate what you think are reasonable increases, and then you build in a percentage rent component. You mm -hmm. essentially determine what the they call natural break is within their business. And this is not reserved just for the big corporates. In today's day and age, uh, having the ability to somewhat audit financials of a business, it's getting easier and easier and easier, right? The days mm -hmm. of, of the cash businesses are, are almost all but a thing of the past. So as inflation kicks in and as the tenant performs and their cost of goods go up, therefore their prices are increasing. If you hit certain thresholds, the landlord participates in those profits above mm -hmm. your natural break in the form of percentage rent. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where it's like, you make more, we can charge more. But the flip side, if you're not making more, if this thing that we think is going to happen, then we'll keep the rates low for you. And it's not artificially low. It's really just like, hey, we're in this together. We don't want you to have to relocate in five years. You don't want to relocate in five years. Let's work together to find something that really works for both of us. And I think a lot of people forget that in the negotiation game. They're so intent on winning that they don't let the other guy win. But here's the problem. In real estate, you're in a partnership, yeah. right? If things go bad for them, things go bad for you. 
Turning over tenants is expensive. People who don't pay, it's expensive. Dealing with all of the back and forth and the legal paperwork of even someone who falls behind and trying to work it out, it's expensive. So really building a deal that works for everybody is absolutely essential in any business, but especially in real estate. Well, no, no doubt about it. There's never been a, a, a time, in, at least in recent history, where securing the right, viable, strong tenant uh, has been more more important. So, look, uh, Derek, there's there are so many pressures and concerns and things as a small business that we're we're worrying about. That there's almost a, a, a level of fear or a level of discomfort when you start talking about taxes and finance and the other mm-hmm. side of the business. Like I said, many of us are so uh, caught up in trying to keep things moving forward that we don't focus there. As a small business, where do I start? Right. I want to come and I want to work with you, Derek. Where do we start? What do we do? You know, honestly, the first place we look at for most people is let's start with taxes. Taxes are the single biggest cost in your life. And investment strategy is only as good as the tax strategy that accompanies it. Because let's list, I, I don't remember what the exact taxes are in, in New York, but I'm sure it's similar to California. In California, if you're in the top tax bracket, you're paying 49% of every dollar that you make. So is making more money more important than saving the taxes? I would dare say your net depends on both. And what I mean by net is not the net you pay taxes on, but the net you keep after taxes, right? So optimizing tax strategy is huge. I mean, it really is. We talk to clients and quite often there are six-figure opportunities for them to save each year that they've just been missing. You know, and they're working with, their dad's friend or their, the guy who took over for their dad's buddy. And, and he kind of does their books every year and tells them what they owe, but there's no proactive planning. There's no looking forward. There's no, how can we structure this? Right. I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with things like cost segregation and bonus depreciation. But if you're not doing those things, your CPA probably won't tell you to be honest with you, unless he's a real estate guy. Um, And even on a personal level, there's a tons of, ton of things you can do. There's something called the Augusta rule, which is where you're able to rent your home to your business for certain things, like if you do retreats or meetings or things where you would normally have to rent a conference space or a, an event center where you can get money out of the business into your personal uh, thing. You can bring your kids into the business, use them as part of your branding and pay them for their, their likeness and their image, get money into their, into their pockets uh, for their education, for their own schooling, maybe they don't pay f- pay for their own private schools, all that kind of stuff. But that's all tax free dollars you can get into the household. Um, how you pay yourself is super super important. Um, being able to avoid self employment tax. Obviously, if you're in the real estate game, finding a way to be um, engaged as a as a real estate professional can have some real value as far as being able to take um, passive losses against active income. There's a lot of things that can be done. And most people, CPAs, just aren't telling them about it. Most people are what I call tax recorders. And I'm not a CPA. Like, right? We work with CPAs to help people. And obviously, we have a bunch of people that we work with who we think are good. But what I find is most CPAs want to be proactive, but they're not. They're so busy doing their work, just like you were talking about working in the business, that they're not figuring out the strategies. And there's been a ton of them this past year with COVID, people being able to pull money out of 401ks. Maybe you wanted to get involved in your first real estate deal, but all your money's stuck in a qualified plan. 
you can pull out 100000 bucks without paying the penalty this past year. You still got to pay the taxes, but you're paying them anyway. And if I'm honest with you, I don't think tax rates are going to be lower in the future than they are now. So get your money. Start using it, right? Um, especially as a business owner, I think separating yourself from your money is not a great thing. So, so we're not huge fans of, of tying up your money so, that way. So the relationship with your firm to, say, my firm and or my accountant um, – would be uh, you're not accountants or you're not working as accountants. You're, you would be coming in and advising us in conjunction with our accountants about ways that they can uh, uh, revision our planning and, and how we can access uh, some additional capital and, and your strategy. In short, what you're saying is instead of focusing on which is, I mean, we just left the meeting where we were talking about exactly this. What's the plan? We have to scale. We have to continue to grow, right? No, no the big secret, mm -hmm. folks, that nobody tells you when you're trying to grow the business is uh, as you start to get bigger and as you start to generate more revenue, all of the bills get bigger and all of the expenses grow along with it, right? So mm -hmm. it, it, you, know, you get to a point where uh, if you're not operating at the top end of efficiency within that kind of growth tranche, there's so many inefficiencies that you have to get to the ceiling, right? Yep. And once you yep. get to the ceiling, then you can make the decision, do I want to kind of break into the next tier? But otherwise, you're in no man's land. So you're going to come in and you're going to work with us and our accountant. So it, do you do just specific industries, I wonder, the way tax codes are set up? How, how wide of a berth do you have as far as knowledge in the different industries? Yeah, so I actually have quite a few CPAs that I work with. And so a lot of times what we'll do for a client is uh, we'll sit down and look at their business, but we'll do a tax review for them. So I'll have a CPA generally in that industry. There's four or five industries that I work a lot with, right? Real estate's one of them because of my investing background, but we work with a lot of physicians, doctors, dentists, these kinds of people. Um, I also work with a lot of franchise owners, those kinds of groups. So we have people who, who understand those industries and we'll do a tax review for them and say, hey, here's some things that you could have done in the past or that we think you can do moving forward that you're not doing. Let's have a conversation about that. And I'll be honest with you, James, sometimes it's like people are saying, hey, we're getting none of this advice from our people. And for me to come back and try and educate their CPA and get him on board, maybe that's not a good trade. And maybe it's just like, hey, let's work with someone who is already up to speed on this and can really take you forward. But like some people love their CPA. They love, you know, maybe it's a family member, it's a friend, someone they really trust. Um, so maybe we'll work with them and we'll say, okay, well, ultimately your CPA has got to sign off on it. He's got to be on board with the strategies. So here's the questions you should be asking them. Here's where you can go forward with this and apply as you will, right? Because ultimately I'm not going to take somebody away from someone that they want to be working with. That's not really our goal. It's just some... Some CPAs are better at what they do than others, just like anything. Right? Well, without, without a doubt. And um, it, it's, it's often a shocking exercise <laughs> when you get involved with, it really is, man. You get involved with consultants like yourself and you're, you're going. And again, because you've been, man, we're, we're laden with so much regulation and, and so much difficulty to operate that you, you just assume that your attorney's 
have your back and your accountants are taking care of the other side of it. And you assume that these professionals, especially if you're a company that's grown and that is scaled, right? You, yeah. you think that kind of the people you came to the dance with are growing with you. Uh, and that is often not the case, right? So correct. Um, unfortunately, for those of you out there who have not gone through this exercise, I could tell you it's a painful one when you start to bring in these consultants like Derek, uh, who are specializing in these kind of cost confinement solutions. And you, you come to find out that the other side of the business is not being tended to the way we tend to the front end of the business with the uh -huh. passion tenacity and the vigor that we come to work with every day. That's not often the case on the back end. And, you know, the unfortunate reality of it is at the end of the day, we have no one to blame but ourselves, right? We're, we're the ones calling the shots. We're the ones that are allowing this to happen. And many times it's not the professional's fault. You know, they're just not at that level. And, and again, when the engagement started, they were operating in a different place. So um, this is interesting, Derek. I, I wonder, do you guys do uh, do you advise like on the other side of more proactive investing or do you limit the expertise to cost confinement and trying to find the dollars between the lines? So I do have a guy on my team because here, here's what we run into that's kind of driven this for me, James, and you've probably seen this in your businesses. We started off doing one thing for clients, but then we found with this one thing, they really need this thing and then they need yep. this thing and we want to make it all work together. So we worked really hard to find people who, who are experts in these things, because I can't be an expert at everything. I don't even want to try to be like my head will blow up, right? I'm already overloaded with information. So we, I, I have um, someone who specializes in tax advantaged investments, and it's mostly tax driven in the sense that these guys are coming in like, hey, we made a million dollars this year. How do we not pay 500,000 in taxes? Right. And there are investments. So you guys are probably familiar with like opportunity zones, which was one of those, but you had to have, it was a specific kind of investment for a specific period of time and a specific type of income. So it was a really small window, but there are other types of investments out there like that, uh, that people can get involved in where you put the money into those. And in addition to the ROI, you also get really significant tax breaks, sometimes a hundred percent, you know, write-offs, sometimes uh, donation credits, sometimes a, a lot of other things that you can do, everything from land conservation easements, which are, you know, pretty, the IRS doesn't love those, to things like uh, buying and uh, donating art, which is a multi-year strategy to some of these other kinds of things. Oil and gas has been a big one recently. I would expect with the new things that this administration is rolling out, that there's going to be some incentives in there, right? to you put a, you put money into green energy or or wind turbines or whatever they're going to give you 50%, 75%, 100% write off. Well, if you're in those top tax brackets, you you'd put $100,000 in and you don't pay $40,000 in taxes. That's a pretty nice ROI. Plus yeah. you get whatever you make on the investment and then you get your money back in a couple of years or whatever. That's just a total you know, example, like really generic, but I just want people to see like when you start adding tax savings to regular ROI, which is one of the things that makes real estate so great, right? It's got some really great tax benefits, but there are a lot of other things. And so we, we kind of got forced into that side of the business just because people needed it. And so I found this advisor who we work really closely with. We've probably got 50 clients together now. 
um, who, who specializes in that side of the business. So we do help help people with that. But to the point you were making, it's not how much you make, it's how much you get to keep. And so many people, if we think of your, your bank account as a bucket, so many people are focused on putting water into the bucket, but there's all these holes in the bucket. And if you don't patch up the holes, the water's the, you're never going to hold any water, right? So in addition to, and listen, you have to put water in the bucket, right? If you don't make the money in the first place, we can't save it. We can't optimize it. We can't do all the other stuff. But if that's all you do, you're losing a lot of money unnecessarily. So we really work on that. We do another thing that applies a lot to real estate. I mentioned this to you before we talked, but we, for like developers or people who are going in and retrofitting buildings or doing a lot of engineering, architectural solutions, that kind of stuff. There's research and development credits out there that most people are completely unaware of. And honestly, up until 2015, those were really hard for small business owners to get involved with because the documentation was super rigorous and they changed every single year. So it was really hard to keep up with. But since 2015, there's a couple of firms out there that have popped up that specialize in this type of stuff. Um, and they, they're willing to go and dig out the credits and all the money that you're paying for to figure out solutions, try new materials, uh, engineering, soils, all, all that kind of stuff to meet codes and everything. All those dollars, they're, you can get refunds back on that. Not dollar for dollar, just a small percentage. But if you're spending millions of dollars on all that kind of stuff to do all your projects, there's some big refunds on the table. I mean, we do this for little guys like doctors and dentists, and they're getting forty-five dollars to $75,000 back in taxes on a, on a three-year look back. When you start talking about commercial construction companies, we've seen companies. I haven't personally done one this big, but some of the other guys, I mean, we've seen seven-figure refunds for these big construction companies. So, so wait, a, wait a minute. <laughs> because this is, you, you've, you've got me here now, right? Like uh, fish on. So you're saying that there's R&D credits that if you're investing in through a construction company, real estate, whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. as where as just kind of the normal course of business, right? Our mm -hmm. toolboxes have changed, and and certainly um, the construction industry is not uh, isolated or insulated from this. Their toolbox has changed, and we've all been trying different neat new materials new methodologies new ways to do things new tools uh it the, one of my favorite things is to to go to some of these shows and see the advances in materials and how different things are in what felt like a pretty fixed industry in the construction world right uh, so it's not just a a forward-looking strategy you can retroactively go back and get money for this yeah, so just like we, you can amend your taxes back three years, as long as you're like, you know, some sort of entity, not for a sole prop, but uh, you can go back and revise your taxes. So if you weren't claiming those credits, we can do a three-year look back and look at what are the wages you're paying for, what are the uh, supplies you're paying for that deal with this type of experimental problem-solving solutions-oriented stuff. If you're building custom things, and listen, in commercial real estate, just about everything's custom, right? Um, if you're building custom stuff, whether it's a manufacturer, I mean, that's how they classify dentists as custom manufacturers almost, because they custom manufacture each little tooth, right? Wow. Um, or or customs systems creators for like uh, physical therapists. I mean, all this stuff that's customized, 
software, any kind of proprietary software. I don't know if you guys are doing that, but a lot, I know a lot of builders have it. You're spending money for coders to figure that out and engineer that stuff and client intake portals and lead, lead generation. If there's coding, custom coding, not just off the shelf stuff, all that type of stuff can qualify. But in the construction world, yeah, all your, your architectural and engineering stuff can qualify. All those solutions and materials and, and different things that you're trying can qualify because they know you're going to lose on some of those, right? You spend money, you try something, it fails. They want to give you a little bit of money back because they know by trying new stuff, you're going to miss sometimes. And they want to kind of help offset that so you're not afraid to try new stuff. Wow. So on the real estate side, uh, one of the things we take great pride in, and it's one of our core values, is uh, exceptional innovators. We're constantly trying new methodologies. We are constantly trying to uh, stay one or two or three steps ahead of lead gen and sourcing and how we uh, it's just it, it's, there's a whole amazing kind of science behind it but we're sure. constantly trial and error right just fall forward that's that's kind of where we landed on this it's okay to fall down and and we fall down daily just keep falling forward keep picking yourself up keep trying uh-huh. there would be dollars that are available for us to recapture, even on the real estate side. It doesn't have to be physical construction. You're talking about dentists making teeth and where we've got several different proprietary apps in development now. Um, uh-huh. we, we've deployed, I can't tell you how many systems, many fail, some work. Uh-huh. We're yep. eligible for this. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything you're telling me falls right in that where you're, where you're streamlining and it's like, is there evaluation of alternatives is there trial and error you know are you innovating trying to make systems better trying to make products better trying to make processes better yeah all of that type of work uh, a percentage of it qualifies right so yeah wow and this is a um so is it a registration that you 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 have to go through or is it basically just a refiling of your Taxes, what does what the process look like? Yeah, so the process itself, and then I'll answer the second question first. Uh, the process itself is we have, have uh, an intake form where we kind of find out about your business. You know, how many employees, how big are you, that kind of stuff. But then there's a series of about 40 questions of, you know, do you develop products? If you do, yes or no, what are those? How, you know, give us some examples. Have you done any coding or software? Um, do you have systems for evaluating, you know, projects before you do them, after you do them? So we go through a series and what we're looking to identify is activities that would help your business qualify. And then we send that over to uh, the CPA team and they go through this stuff and they'll give us an estimate. We send that plus your taxes because they kind of match the activity up to your taxes. And and they'll give us an estimate of what they think is on the table. Usually they're within 10 or 15%. And then if you decide you want to move forward um, with after the free estimate, then there's a fee associated with that. And that fee is usually about a third. I work with three different companies that do this, about a third of what you uh, f- what they find for you. So if they find 100 grand, their fees $33,000. They do all the work up front. When the filing's ready, you pay half the fee. And then the other half of the fee you pay when you get the checks back from the IRS once they've been okayed. Um, so that's that's kind of how the process itself works. What was your first question? Yes, one more thing in there. 
that I missed? Uh, the, the formality of it, uh, it being a registration or. Yeah. So this, this is just a, like, if you, if you're an S corp, everything flows through to you personally, right? So it's going to be like a, a 1040 X. If you're a C corp, then those credits go back to the company because the company paid taxes on that, that sure. income. Uh, but it's, it's just an uh, amended return where they basically go in and they outline, hey, here are the costs that we've identified that are eligible for a refund. So it doesn't change all your numbers. It just goes in and identifies the costs that are available for a refund and asks for that. There's a form that you fill out for that. This is, this is remarkable. So when we first started talking and, and we were on the path of new administration, uh, you know, clearly there's a focus on different priorities and mm -hmm. as a way to kind of diversify your portfolio, perhaps investing in alternate energy sources or there's some really neat technologies out there um, to help solve for the landfill crisis that the country is facing. I mm -hmm. thought that's what you meant only, but it's not just... Uh, folks, Derek's not just saying, hey, consider diversification into some of these alternate areas where not only do you have the opportunity to possibly hit a home run with the investment, but there are also alternate benefits. He's talking about in the everyday nuance. I know a lot of you out there are involved in real estate in one way or another. A lot of you out there are doctors and dentists. Uh, we're all innovators. I mean, this is what we do uh -huh. uh, and retroactively be available and not only is it amazing to be able to take that money today of all times and repurpose it moving forward, but I mean, I could tell you the wheels are turning now. Uh, yeah. It for as an entrepreneur, I'm inclined to focus more on those types of innovations. Maybe expand the envelope a little bit more. Maybe take a little bit more risk, right, in innovating because there's an opportunity to recapture some of that money. Derek, that's brilliant. Um, you know, uh, I, I wonder. Beyond that, there's the, the traditional ways that we were kind of raised on to, to grow your money and to save, right? There's the uh -huh. traditional, you know, your IRAs and stocks and bonds and 401ks and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a different world now. I wonder, are you advising clients to explore different areas? What are some of the, the newer areas that you are or may be advising people to take a look at and to consider folding into the portfolio? Yeah. So my, my first rule of thumb for people is as you're looking at things, I would invest in things you know about, things you care about, and things you control, right? Hmm. If you know about stuff, you're going to have a much better chance of making good decisions. If you care about it, you'll pay attention. And listen, when you don't pay, I know people say real estate's passive, right? When you don't pay attention, what really happens? <laughs> it's, a, it's a slow downhill slide, right? Yeah. And things you have control over. Uh, most people feel very disempowered when they've been separated from their money. If the market crashes tomorrow for people who are in stocks and bonds, what do you do? Well, you got two choices. You sell and you guarantee those losses or you wait and hope that it comes back. In real estate, for example, if, especially if you have any knowledge, if a real estate property isn't performing well, you can change the facade. You can change the structuring of the payments. You can rework leases. You can do so many things. You have control because you have knowledge. You have the ability to impact that. I just really prefer to put people in the driver's seat. Now, if you're going outside of that, because listen, there is some level of knowledge and re responsibility there. If you go outside of that, then we like to put people into things that have guaranteed rates of return. 
we teach something, and you probably heard of this, James, called the infinite banking concept. And it's, it's how to build your own banking system inside of a specifically designed life insurance policy, which sounds crazy because when people think of life insurance, they think of like, when I die, it pays. But they're actually really great places to store cash if you set them up properly. We minimize fees, we minimize death benefit, we maximize the cash growth. And there are some really incredible products out there where the fees are end up being very, very small. So it's just, it, it ends up becoming like a, a higher interest emergency opportunity fund. With real estate, you've always got to have a bunch of cash around, even if it's just so lenders will trust you so that you can get the yep. loans you need. But for deposits and for repairs and for all the contingencies that come up and cash flow can swing wildly, right? I mean, I was just doing single family properties in commercial, I'm sure that you guys have seven figure swings, right? So does that seven figures need to be sitting around doing nothing the whole time just so you can have it? Or can you have that in a place where it's going to be growing? And actually, if you do it right, it's either tax deferred or tax free growth inside of the policy. Um, and then you can use that to help finance your deals, do a bunch of other things. So I won't go through the whole detail of it, but that's a strategy that we think if you don't know what to do, start building up the cash there. Because once you find out what you want to invest in, you can take it from there and deploy it to these other things. And what it does is it really sets you up so that instead of your zero or your, your floor being zero, like in a savings account, your floor is much higher. Right now, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 6% uh, with tax advantages. If you've got better opportunities, you take your money, you go do those things. And if you don't, you store it there. The, the, that's in, that's literally an episode into itself is just some of the <laughs> strategies. It, it really is, right? Folks yeah, are yeah. not aware of this. I got involved in whole life policies way, way, way back in the day. Um, you know, I was advised to do it and I kind of did it begrudgingly because I didn't understand the value or concept of it. And mm -hmm. I can tell you today what an unbelievable asset this is for me. I have the ability to tap into it, take the money out tax-free, use it for projects, not lose my dividend, not lose my growth, take the mm -hmm. money when I'm done with the project, dump it back in and let it to continue to, to develop. So there's a, there's a, a host of different ways to to optimize this. And guys, look, th this is what it's about, right? Every time I have someone like Derek on, we ultimately end up in a place where I realize very quickly that I know what I know. I believe better than anybody. What I do, I do best. And there are counterparts to all of us out there. We all have that kind of, again, entrepreneurial mind and entrepreneurial spirit. We know what we do best, but the trap that we fall into is we also do a lot of other things better than most people, but far worse <laughs> than the experts in that respective field, right? Yep. This happens is, and this is a, a terrible trap that we fall into, is you start putting your hands in places because you can not because you should in moving things along. There are experts in each one of these fields. And every time I sit down and have these discussions, Derek, I sit back and I go, good Lord, there's another area where I really should be seeking outside advice to optimize what we're doing there. Because it, it, it's, it's like the, the way we study commercial real estates and the trends and the tips and the tricks to stay ahead of things. That's what you're doing on the finance side, right? So you, yep. you want to be surrounded yep. with the best of the best. Um, I, I know we're getting tight on time here, but if you have a couple of more minutes, I wanted to ask you about a video I was watching recently because I'm fascinated with this Bitcoin. Sure, uh, sure. You sure. Know, 
so Derek has a, a video up uh, on YouTube. Uh, is Bitcoin in a bubble? Should you be concerned? I think that was the tagline. Yeah. Um, could you speak a little bit about to the crypt the, the cryptocurrency and what is it that you really think is happening here? And look, we get it, right? Entertainment purposes only. We're here just to kind of have a little fun and talk. But I'd yeah. love to have you share with the audience your perspective. I thought it was really neat. Yeah. So, so what I think is happening here is, you know, at first Bitcoin was just like a bunch of people who were sort of anti-government, anti-everything. We want to control our own currency. And then it kind of moved to people who were into the high-tech world. And then it started moving into like these these billionaires and these high net worth people who are like, hey, this could be kind of a place to store some cash just a little bit. Let's have a hedge against inflation and whatever. And I think the inflation fear is one of the things that's pushing this. And normally when you have inflation, people want to go into equities, right? Like gold and silver or oil or other kinds of things. Well, certainly oil, we don't know what's going to happen with that, right? I mean, people are going to continue to drive cars, but certainly there's already legislation in California that they're going to be getting rid of, you know, oil, gas-driven vehicles, and uh, all over the world, those things are changing. So people are a little more hesitant. And I think that Bitcoin is starting to fill that gap for a lot of people. It's a thing that, like with gold, you need to go and generally take like physical uh, control or, or access to that particular metal. And so it's a little bit cumbersome. You got to go down to a place and buy it, and you got to store it, and you got to have a safe and all that other stuff, but it's always been a storehold of value. And so people have done that. With Bitcoin, it kind of has a lot of the same things in the sense that it's something that you can trade back or back and forth, but you can do it on an app in a minute, right? And it's super, super easy. So that's been appealing to a certain group of people. And then a lot of people argue, well, gold's always had value. You know, we, we think that it's important that you, you, you put your money there. But here's the thing. Ask yourself, if gold disappears tomorrow, how's your life impacted? Like maybe you got to get a different billing and you got to get a new wedding ring. But outside of that, outside of jewelry, gold doesn't have a lot of utility. In fact, the reason that gold was chosen as our, as our trading piece was basically it was rare enough. It was moldable enough that you could like mint it and break it up into little pieces. It was portable enough that you could carry it around. It was durable enough. It didn't wear out like paper or some of these other things. And so they just decided this is the thing we're going to use to trade back and forth. Like there was no intrinsic value. Like real estate has intrinsic value, right? People need a place to live or to work. Gold doesn't have intrinsic value. So people make the argument that like, you know, what if Bitcoin disappeared? Like nobody cares about it. You could say the same thing about gold. Outside of jewelry making, I don't know of any real reason to have it. And so to me, that's a moot argument. And what I see happening is a lot of these people who are in foreign countries uh, where they don't have the stability with their, their currency, they're putting money in there to hold it just to be safe. Like if, if you're in a country that's seeing massive inflation and there's a couple out there, this is a great place to put your money in. At least it holds its value. People are afraid of that in the US. So they're putting their money in there. And then we see this legitimized by companies like Square, they have a ton of money in there. Obviously, Tesla put what uh, $1.5 billion in there, which was like 10% of their liquid assets. Apple yep. put a bunch of money in there. Mass Mutual, which is a ginormous conservative company, put some money in there. And you're seeing more and more of these hedge funds go in there because a couple of the hedge funds were invested in Bitcoin last year. 
And so their, their returns look through the ceiling, right? Because Bitcoin did like 360%. So even if that's only 5% of your portfolio, it really pushes up your numbers. And a lot of these hedge funds are putting their money in there. So what's happening is I think it's becoming too big to fail. And the other big knock on cryptocurrency has always been that it's super volatile. It goes way up and it goes way down. But as the asset gets bigger, it becomes more stable because way back, if Tesla had put one and a half billion dollars into it, it would have quadrupled in a day, right? right? And then it would have crashed and people would have been like, what, what happened? Now it's getting so big. The market cap is getting so big that the big ins and outs of money aren't making as much of a wave. And so we're, we're getting more and more stability. And what happens is every time there's a pullback, all the little guys get out who are like kind of day trading and amateurs and the big companies continue to pump money into it. So it's getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger companies that are holding it. I feel like at this point, it's at the point where it's kind of too big to fail. Like if the government wouldn't go in and just shut it down because these huge companies have big stakes in it now and these huge investment firms and too many people would be hurt. And that was always my fear is like, what if the government just says, we want to get rid of Bitcoin? So I feel like we're watching a transition into a new storehold of value. And I think there's going to be some regulations and governments want to control this stuff. So there's going to be some changes in there. But I do think we're seeing some really interesting stuff happening with probably a once in a lifetime thing of, of money changing, like that storehold of value being transferred to a new asset that's being recognized by a lot of the biggest players in the world. And so I don't know. I'm not saying people should or shouldn't put money in there, but I think if you ignore it, it's at your own peril because I do think it's an asset that's going to be here for a while. It's solving a lot of problems for a lot of people. And ultimately that's what determines the value of something. And if it's going to stick around. Fascinating stuff, you know, they're a counter argument to some of those points is there was a, a, a you know, a period in time when Washington Mutual, Lehman Brothers, these were household names too, right? And after yeah. the 2008 mm -hmm. crash, um, you know, uh, and through the CMBS investing and, and the things that they were doing there, kind of follow the leader was a mentality that that backfired to some extent uh, in those respective sure. firms, of course. But I think you're right. Uh, you know, the thing that, that shakes me on this is uh, I'm a tangible kind of guy too. And, mm -hmm. and it's just... The, the, the fact that it's predicated on these programs that are supposed to every four years, I think it is, produce 50% less than what it was producing in coins each year as we move forward, thereby it being you know a, 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 a commodity that's being limited. So, of course, the pricing is going to go up. That part of it's hard for me to wrap my head around. But uh, as a, a place to diversify and take pieces of and, and to pursue, it, it, it's neat. I mean, look. The topics uh, we can go on here, literally, like I barely even got to. I had four pages of questions I wanted to cover with you. And we barely scratched the surface, but um, this is fascinating stuff, Derek. Uh, you're, you clearly serve for a, a really big solve for us small business owners where if we can get past the fear uh, uh, of dealing with that side of the business and bring professionals in, uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, there's tremendous upside here. So how does the audience get in touch with you? What's the best way to, to have a conversation and, and engage to see if you can help out with, with some of the people in the audience? Yeah, the, the easiest way is just to go to the website, biglifefinancial.com. There's a little button up in the corner that says work with us um, or 
you know, there's multiple places where you can contact us on the website where you can just click on the button. It'll put you on our calendar. You can either look at my calendar or, uh, or reach out to us via email and we can, we can schedule you because sometimes my calendar gets booked and sometimes we have slots tomorrow, right? Just kind of depends on the day, but generally speaking, uh, yeah, just biglifefinancial.com. Click the work with us button. You can go right to my calendar, pick a time for us to talk and, you know, we'll spend a half an hour, 45 minutes the first time, just getting a feel for where you're at, what you're trying to accomplish, some of the challenges, because there are quite a few things that we can do. And then we kind of put together a plan of like, here's the most important thing. And here's the next most important thing. What's important in November is probably proactive track tax strategy before January 1st. What's important at different times of the year might be uh, totally different. So we just kind of try and do the, the smartest thing and the most important things first and work our way through the whole process. But yeah, there's just kind of a, about five stages we go through there with clients if, if they need all, all of that. Well, this has been uh, incredibly informative. I hope the audience derived some, some of the value that I've pulled from this. I, I, if nothing else, it once again puts the spotlight on. You've got to have the right professional folks in the right areas. You know, we work too damn hard for our money. And there's ways that we can hedge and protect ourselves. So, you know, someone like Derek and his firm can can really play a big part of that solution. So, Derek, again, I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. And uh, we'll be back in touch with you offline. Sounds great, James. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Everyone out there, as always, we appreciate uh, this kind of experience we're sharing together. We're having a blast. Please uh, keep it coming. And uh, everyone, stay safe.